0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stolen, Broken, and Forgotten. The True Story of Canadian Residential Schools. Residential schools were government-sponsored boarding schools established to assimilate Indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture. Ran by church authorities of various Christian denominations, the schools were a death sentence for many children forced to attend by the Canadian government. Although details of the squalid conditions and shocking abuses suffered by the native children were made known to the public decades ago, it wasn't until recent years that awareness of this attempt at cultural genocide has been spread through social media. This was a direct result of a disturbing revelation that made headlines worldwide. In May of 2021, anthropologist Dr. Sarah Buley discovered 215 unmarked graves at the former site of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Hundreds of unmarked graves were discovered in the following weeks and months at 10 other residential schools. In addition, many historical discoveries came to light, long since being forgotten by the media and the general public. As early as 1974, unmarked graves were excavated at residential school sites throughout Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the Northwest Territories. Before the grim news of the discovery at Kamloops had reached millions of people through social media, many people weren't even aware that the residential schools had even existed. As of March 1st, 2022, the official number of graves has reached 2,084, although it is suspected the final count may be as high as 6,000 or higher. European colonialists built the residential schools in eastern Canada as early as the 1600s. As explained in the executive summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the colonials believed their actions would result in a civilization of savage people who could never civilize themselves. However, at the early stage of European colonization, They still relied heavily on the indigenous people for trade and basic survival in a foreign land. These early attempts at coercive assimilation quickly failed without the power to force their wishes upon the natives. There was a second push to establish residential schools for the natives in the early 1820s. After the War of 1812, the threat of invasion by American forces was minimized, and indigenous communities were no longer viewed as allies. Instead, they became a barrier to the future of colonial advancement. The responsibility for interaction with indigenous communities was taken away from military officials, who were sympathetic to their customs and ways of life and handed to civilian representatives who were only concerned with the permanent colonial settlement. One of the earliest schools of this era was established by John West, an Anglican missionary at the Red River Colony in what is now known as the province of Manitoba. Protestant missionaries also opened residential schools in the province of Ontario. They attempted to spread Christianity and encouraged indigenous peoples to adopt subsistence agriculture as a new way of life, hoping they would not return to their nomadic traditions after graduation. The Mohawk Institute residential school opened in 1834 on six nations of the Grand River near Brantford, Ontario. The Anglican church-run facility opened as the Mechanics Institute a day school for boys in 1828. Four years later it became a boarding school, changing its policies to accept female students. It remained in operation until June 30th, 1970, making it the longest-running facility in the country. Beginning in the late 1800s, the Canadian government, Department of Indian Affairs, officially encouraged the growth of residential schools. They believed that it was a valuable tool in the broader policy of integrating indigenous people into Euro-Canadian society. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, an estimated 150,000 children were placed in residential schools nationally. As the system was designed as an immersion program, the primary goal was to convert indigenous children to Christianity and acculturate them to a new way of life. By 1931... Eighty residential schools were operating in Canada. The Catholic Church used 44. Twenty-one were operated by either the Church of England or the Anglican Church of Canada, and the United Church of Canada performed 13, and Presbyterians used two. Although education in Canada was made the jurisdiction of the provincial governments by the British North America act, indigenous peoples and their treaties were under the federal government's jurisdiction. Under the Indian Act of 1876, all previous laws regarding natives were consolidated, placing indigenous communities, land, and finances under federal control. As explained by the TRC, the act made Indians wards of the state, unable to vote in provincial or federal elections, and unable to enter the trades if they did not surrender their status, which severely limited their freedom to participate in spiritual or cultural practices. The federal government saw the existence of traditional indigenous cultures as a threat to their complete domination of this vast new land. They referred to it as the Indian question, and their answer to this question was the total extermination of these cultures. Duncan Campbell Scott, the deputy superintendent of the Department of Indian Affairs from 1913 to 1932, was quoted as saying, i want to get rid of the indian population i do not think the country should continuously protect a class of people who can stand alone our objective is to continue until there is not a single indian in canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic there is no indian question and no indian department by the 1930s, government officials recognized that the residential school system was both financially unstable and failing to meet the intended goal of training and assimilating indigenous children into Euro-Canadian society. Robert Huey, Superintendent of Welfare and Training in the Indian Affairs branch of the federal government, proposed the expansion of day schools rather than total separation from their families. The proposal was resisted by United Church, the Anglican Church, and the missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, who believed the solution to the system's failure was not restructuring but a redoubled effort to keep the residential school system afloat. Despite the shift in policy from educational assimilation to integration, state officials' removal of indigenous children from their families continued through much of the 1960s and 1970s. With no requirement or specialized training regarding the traditions or lifestyles of the communities they entered, provincial officials assessed the welfare of indigenous children based on Euro-Canadian values that, for example, deemed traditional diets of game, fish, and berries insufficient and grounds for taking children into custody. Torn from their parents' arms at gunpoint... The children were either placed in residential schools or fostered and placed up for adoption by predominantly non-Indigenous families throughout Canada and the United States. The Department of Indian and Northern Affairs estimates that 11,132 children were adopted between 1960 and 1990, but the actual number may be as high as 20,000. Poor record-keeping and the passage of time have made it impossible to track them down. Many of them disappeared from the public record after their adoption. The parents and families of indigenous children resisted the residential school system throughout its existence. Children were kept home from schools and sometimes hidden from the government officials who were sent to raise children on native reserves. Parents advocated for the increased funding for schools, including growing centrally located day schools to improve access to their children. They had repeated requests for improvements to the quality of education, food, and clothing provided at the schools. Demands for an inquest into abuse claims were routinely dismissed as a ploy by parents seeking to keep their children at home. Students in the residential school system were faced with a multitude of criminal abuses by both the teachers and the administrators. They suffered from the malnourishment and harsh discipline that would not have been tolerated in any other Canadian school system. Overcrowding, poor sanitation, inadequate heating, and a lack of medical care led to high rates of influenza and tuberculosis. Federal policies tied school funding to enrollment numbers, leading to sick children being forcibly enrolled to boost funding. The school's conditions further complicated the problem of unhealthy children, poor ventilation, substandard water quality, and faulty sewage systems, which made these places the perfect breeding grounds for disease. In some schools, the death rate from these illnesses ran as high as 70%, until the federal government shifted to a day-school integration model in the late 1950s. The native schools were severely underfunded. They relied on the forced labor of their students to maintain their facilities. Although it was presented as training for trades and the other labor-intensive careers they may face, the work was difficult and the hours were long, severely compromised by the academics and social developments of the students. School books and textbooks were drawn from the curricula of the provincially funded public schools for non-Indigenous students, and teachers at the residential schools were usually poorly trained or prepared. During this period, the Canadian government used the students as guinea pigs for nutritional study, keeping some students undernourished for a control sample. The shocking details of these crimes were published numerous times throughout the 20th century in government reports on school conditions and during the proceedings of civil cases brought forward by survivors seeking compensation for the abuse they had endured. The impact of residential schools was also brought to light in the popular culture at. The impact of residential schools was also brought to light in popular culture as early as 1967 in an article published in Maclean's magazine titled. The Lonely Death of Cheney Wenyak Cheney Wenyak was an Ojibwe child who, along with two other orphaned brothers, ran away from a residential school in Kenora, Ontario. It was mid-October and the boys were only wearing thin, cotton windbreakers that were issued to them by the school. They walked more than eight hours the first day spending the night at the house of a white man the brothers knew as Mr. Benson. Benson took the exhausted boys in gave them something to eat, and let them sleep that night on the floor. The next day, Chaney and his friends made their way to a cabin owned by their Uncle Kelly. Kelly was an impoverished trapper who could not feed his own family, his nephews, and a young stranger, so Chaney left to walk 370 miles back to the Ogoki Post in the Martin Falls Reserve. He struggled along the train tracks, alone, underdressed, and without food for 36 hours. On the night of October twenty-second, Cheney succumbed to a combination of hunger and exposure to the freezing weather, and he died in a hole beside the tracks. At the time of his death, Cheney Wenyak was twelve years old. Children often ran away from the brutality they experienced at the residential schools. The schools were usually located. The schools were usually located many miles from the nearest town or settlement, making the journey extremely dangerous for a small child with no clear idea of how to get home. The runaways would often lose their extremities to frostbite or be killed while trying to jump aboard a moving train. The punishments for running away were usually quite severe. At Cheney's school, the penalty for fleeing the school grounds was a savage beating with a leather strap. In other schools, runaways were locked in unheated windowless shacks for up to 10 days. The fact that these children would still choose to flee at every opportunity despite all the dangers involved speaks volumes about the conditions they were forced to live in. Chronic underfunding was responsible for a health crisis within the schools and a severe financial crisis within the missionary groups. In 1911, the federal government had increased the per capita funding for the schools, but that funding was repeatedly reduced throughout the Great Depression and World War II. In 1937, the federal grant money averaged $180 per student per year. For perspective, the per capita cost for comparable institutions were between $350 and $640. The Child Welfare League of America stated that the per capita cost for well-run institutions ranged between $313 and $541. Canada was paying 57.5% of the minimum figure. Changes in per capita cost did not occur until the 1950s and were seen as insignificant. In 1966, the per capita cost in Saskatchewan residential schools ranged from $694 and $1,193, which was a 36% markup of what other Canadian child welfare institutions were receiving. Federal cuts to funding during the Great Depression had a devastating effect on the students' health. By 1937, milk production among the dairy herds at the Kamloops Indian Residential School was reduced by 50%. The federal government refused to fund the construction of an additional barn to increase milk production and isolate sick animals. Even among other schools' dairy herds' funding was so low that milk was separated, with the skimmed milk being served to children and the fat being turned into dairy products to fund the schools. In 1939, the Presbyterian School in Kenora began charging their students 10 cents for a loaf of bread until their Indian agent ordered the school to stop. The salary for the staff at these institutions was dismally low. In 1948, C.H. Birdsall, chairman of the United Church Committee responsible for the Edmonton School, stated that it was doubtful that the present work for Indian children would properly be called education. The pay was much lower than in provincial schools. Many teachers lacked verified teaching qualifications. Several of them were sex offenders who had only taken the job to gain access to vulnerable children, easy victims who had no one to talk to and nowhere to hide. For those who could make the journey, parental visitation was strictly controlled by school officials in a manner very similar to the procedures in the prison system. In some cases, schools denied parents access to their children altogether. Others required families to meet in the presence of school officials and only speak in English. Parents who could not speak English were not allowed to talk to their children. These obstacles were made even worse by the PASS system, introduced by Indian Commissioner Hater Reed. Without the legislative authority to do so, the PASS system restricted and closely monitored indigenous people's movement on the reserves. They were prohibited from leaving the reserve without a pass from a local Indian agent who was free to choose who could or could not receive a receipt at their whim. Victims of disease, neglect, hunger, and unspeakable abuses of every description, the children in the residential schools often died before graduation. Their deaths were often not recorded in official records, and their families were stonewalled in their efforts to discover the truth. Despite numerous attempts by the various sympathetic officials who tried to shine a light on the conditions within the residential schools, The plight of these children was never well known amongst the general public. This finally changed in the spring of 2021, igniting a social media firestorm that outraged people worldwide. In May 2021, an anthropologist surveyed the Kamloops Indian Residential School site with ground-penetrating radar. During this process, she uncovered the presence of roughly 200 unmarked graves. The grim news shocked many Canadian citizens, Many Canadians had no prior knowledge of the residential schools and the horrible acts committed within their walls. Whistleblowers have been publishing scathing critiques of the system for many decades, including a book written in 1922 by a former medical officer titled The Story of a National Crime – A Record of the Health Conditions of the Indians of Canada from 1904 to 1921. In recent times, hidden graves have already been found at the sites of four other schools, starting with the Battleford Industrial School in 1974. After the grisly discovery in Kamloops, another bomb was dropped the following month. Over a hundred more graves had been found in Brandon, Manitoba. On June 24th, a staggering 751 unmarked graves were found in Maryville, Saskatchewan. A few days later, another 182 burials were revealed at the Kootenay Island Residential School in British Columbia. Month after month, more and more evidence of human remains was found at former residential schools across the country. At present, the official count is 2,084 graves at 15 different sites. This is widely thought to be the tip of the iceberg, as dozens of these institutions have been operating since the late 1800s. It's possible that there could be as many as 6,000 unmarked graves that have yet to be discovered. In the aftermath, there was an intense public backlash against Christian institutions. The Catholic Church received heavy help from social media outrage for these crimes. By July 4th of 2021, nearly two dozen Canadian churches had been burned to the ground in retaliation. Another Catholic Church had red paint thrown all over its doors as a symbol of bloodshed. Canada Day celebrations across the nation were cancelled or altered in respect for the thousands of innocent Native children who were stolen from their families at gunpoint, broken by the cruelty of evil men, and buried in the cold ground to be forgotten. The 2012 National Report of First Nations Regional Health Study found that respondents who attended residential schools were more likely to have been diagnosed with at least one chronic medical condition. A sample of 127 survivors revealed that half have criminal records. 65% have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. 21% have been diagnosed with major depression. 7% have been diagnosed with anxiety disorder. And another 7% have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Survivors of residential schools and their families suffer from historical trauma with a lasting and adverse effect on their communities. Indigenous communities suffer many negative social and cultural impacts due to colonial rule in residential schools, including the prevalence of alcoholism, abuse, drug addiction, mental illness, and suicide among indigenous peoples. The inherent cruelty of the system shattered not only the lives of the children who were forced to attend the schools, but disrupted the lives of their children and their children's children, and each generation passing on the effects of the trauma in a repeating cycle. In response to the negative fallout generated by the public's newfound awareness, provincial governments have pledged millions to fund more searches at former residential schools. In addition, the federal government announced the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th, 2021. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau issued a formal apology, saying at a press conference, It was something that we cannot undo in the past but we can pledge ourselves every day to fix the present and into the future. Several Christian churches and government officials have issued formal apologies in the past three decades. Most recently, Pope Francis met with a delegation of First Nations people to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. He was quoted as saying to them, It is chilling to think of determined efforts to instill a sense of inferiority, rob people of their cultural identity, sever their roots, and consider all the personal and social effects that continue to entail unresolved traumas that have become intergenerational traumas. On February 21st, 2008, a tribal council representing 30 northern Manitoba indigenous communities issued a request to Queen Elizabeth II to apologize for the residential schools in Canada. Grand Chief of the Board, Cindy Geriatch, sent a letter with this request to Buckingham Palace. On Canada Day, July 1st, 2021, Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth II statues in front of prominent Canadian buildings were vandalized and toppled by an act of the Manitoba legislature. The head of the Queen Victoria statue was removed and thrown into the Assiniboine River. After the toppling of the figures, Kimberly Ducey, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Winnipeg, publicly called for Queen Elizabeth II to apologize for the role of the British monarchy in establishing residential schools. Although Indigenous leaders have acknowledged these apologies as crucial for the healing process, they are not enough to make up for over a 100 years of abject cruelty by the Canadian government. Beyond apologies and reparations, the government must completely overhaul its policies about Indigenous issues. Despite the many promises made by the federal government, as of November 1st, 2021, 71 first nation communities still do not have access to clean drinking water 17 of them had at least two water advisories in place indigenous people also experienced the highest levels of poverty compared to any other racial or ethnic group in canada a shocking one in four indigenous people live below the poverty line and 40 percent of canada's indigenous children live in poverty indigenous peoples comprise only 4.3 percent of the overall canadian population but 30.6% of the youth homelessness population is comprised of these people. According to a study in 2013, on any given night, 7% of Canada's urban indigenous population is homeless, compared to a national average of 0.78%. The federal government has yet to address a mental health crisis among indigenous communities. They suffer from clinical depression at twice the national average. Suicide is a common and tragic reality for indigenous communities. Suicide rates are 6 to 11 times greater than the Canadian average. In the Northern Territory of Nunavut, a staggering 27% of all deaths since 1999 have been suicides. This is one of the highest suicide rates in the world and it continues to rise, especially among indigenous youth. The Truth and Reconciliation Committee declared in 2015 that the severe abuse Native children had suffered in the schools amounted to cultural genocide in tandem with removal of their homes. This conclusion was echoed by the Canadian educator and historian John S. Malloy, who argued that the system aimed to kill the Indian and the child. Tragically, we will probably never know the number of innocent children who died at the hands of the residential school system. Graves have been found for over half a mile away from these former residential schools, meaning there could be any number of individual grave sites that will never be discovered. The last of these institutions didn't close its doors until 1996. These are not crimes from the long-forgotten past. Although Ottawa formally apologized and paid more than $3 billion to approximately 28,000 victims of abuse, no person or entity has ever been criminally charged for operating the schools. Many responsible people are still alive, and there has been no indication that there will ever be any formal criminal investigations at provincial or federal levels. Until the perpetrators are brought to justice, there will never be peace for the survivors, their families, or the communities destroyed by residential schools' systematic brutality. Arrows speak louder than words. The people of North Sentinel Island North Sentinel Island is part of the Andaman Islands, an archipelago located off the coast of India. It lies approximately 31 miles west of Port Blair, the Andaman and Nicobar Islands capital city. With an area of only 23 square miles, North Sentinel Island is a speck of dry land in the vast expanse of the Bay of Bengal. This small island is home to the North Sentinelese, a tribe of indigenous people who live in a state of voluntary isolation. They are known to use deadly force to defend their island against intruders, attacking any outsider who dares to come close with extreme prejudice. North Sentinel is surrounded by coral reefs and lacks any natural harbors, making it dangerous to approach on a larger vessel. It is almost entirely covered by forest, save for a narrow band of white sand beach that rings the entire island. Recently there were changes in the island's geography due to an Indian Ocean earthquake sometime in 2004, which raised the island by a height of 3 to 7 feet. This exposed a large ring of coral and united North Sentinel with Constance Islet, a tiny island roughly 650 yards away from the southeastern shoreline. The Andaman and Nicobar Islands Protection of Aboriginal Tribes Act prohibits any approach to the island closer than five nautical miles. This measure serves a dual purpose. It prevents the resident tribespeople from contracting diseases to which they have no acquired immunity. It also protects would-be thrill-seekers from the grievous injuries the island's aggressive inhabitants would likely inflict. Officially, North Sentinel belongs to the South Andaman Administrative District, which is part of the Indian Union territory of the Andaman-Nicobar Islands. In practice, however, the authorities restrict their role on the island to monitoring the North Sentinelese at a distance. The island and its people are considered exempt from Indian law, and there is no attempt to prosecute the tribe's people for the murder of intruders. The island's protected status is meant to protect the lives and culture of the North Sentinelese, North Sentinel is also an essential sanctuary for coconut crabs, which have almost completely disappeared from many other regional habitats. Along with the South Sentinel Island, North Sentinel is considered a globally important bird area by BirdLife International. Despite the lack of modern-day surveys, the untouched habitat of the island is likely to harbor a large diversity of bird life. The first sightings of the Sentinelese came a thousand years ago from Arabic sailors who were repelled from landing on the island by a hail of arrows and spears. They assumed the ferocious inhabitants were likely cannibals and continued their way. The next sighting came centuries later in 1771, when a British surveyor named John Ritchie claimed to have observed multiple lights on the shoreline from his vantage point aboard the Diligent, a vessel hired to do a hydrographic survey for the East India Company. Although all agreed on board that it was an intriguing phenomenon, There was no attempt to investigate further. In 1867, Jeremiah Homfrey, an administrator for an infamous cultural integration center called the Andaman Homes, was put in charge of a search for a gang of escaped convicts from the equally notorious Andaman penal colony. He ultimately tracked them to North Sentinel Island. Homfrey wrote, We saw 10 men on the beach, naked, long-haired, with bows and arrows, shooting fish, the natives fled the approach of Homfrey's boat, retreating into the forest to hide from the intruders. Homfrey had several members of the great Andamanese tribe on board, and they all claimed to be frightened of the men on the beach. They told Homfrey the men on the beach initially came from Little Andaman Island and were very fierce. Homfrey opted not to land and left the convicts to their fate. Later that year, an Indian merchant ship called the Nineveh ran aground on their reef during a monsoon. Eighty-six passengers and twenty crewmen managed to struggle to shore. After three days, the Sentinelese decided the intruders had overstayed their welcome and attacked the castaways with a volley of arrows. The shipwrecked mob returned fire with a hail of sticks and rocks and an uneasy truce followed. The castaways were rescued by the Royal Navy soon after the battle. After they were removed from the island, The Sentinelese were observed scavenging iron from the wreck of the Nineveh, which they cold-forged into daggers, spear tips, and arrowheads. More than a decade passed before another attempt was made to contact the Sentinelese. This time, it was led by Maurice Vidal Portman, a British naval officer whose noble lineage afforded him a position as an officer in charge of the Andamanese. Portman brought along several armed Europeans, convict orderlies and several members of the Ongi tribe and his landing party. He wrote, The soil was light and admirably suited for growth of coconut palms, the surface drainage being excellent. The jungle is in many places open and park-like, and there are magnificent groves of bulletwood trees. The expedition located a few tiny villages, and they captured a woman with four small children in tow. After a few days, Portman released the woman and one child after giving them several gifts. Soon after, the group encountered an older man with his wife and a child in the jungle. The man drew his bow, but he was tackled by one of the convicts before he could harm anyone. The six captives were transferred to Port Blair, where they all became gravely ill. The two adults quickly died, and the four children were sent back to their home with quantities of presents. Unfortunately, some of those so-called presents were likely illnesses such as influenza, measles, and the dreaded smallpox, which single-handedly killed millions of indigenous peoples during the Age of Discovery. It has been theorized that the illnesses the captive children brought back to North Sentinel Island left the Sentinelese with a violent aversion to the outsiders. The act of kidnapping six of their tribe's people undoubtedly added more strain to the possibility of establishing future amicable relations. Portman subsequently led several more expeditions to the island in later years, but he was unsuccessful in making further contact. Portman recommended that North Sentinel be converted to a coconut plantation, writing, Search party should go through the jungle and catch some of the male Sentinelese, unhurt, and keep them in the camp. The danger of spreading disease among this uncontacted tribe didn't appear to cause him any anxiety. However, he already noted the devastating effects of European conditions on the ongi and the Great Andamanese, as well as other tribes in the region. The Sentinelese once again dropped from view into 1896 when the corpse of an Indian convict was discovered on the shore of North Sentinel. He had been pierced with multiple arrows, his throat slashed with a dagger. The shattered remains of a bamboo raft, some scraps of clothing that bore the numbers of the three convicts were found nearby, suggesting that two of the escapees had drowned while the third had made it to land, only to be killed by the natives upon discovery. Three years later, Richard Carnac Temple the chief commissioner of the Andaman and Nicobar Island reported in a speech that he had recently toured North Sentinel Island to capture some fugitives, but discovered the Sentinelese had already killed them. Temple also recorded a case where a Sentinelese man had drifted off and lived with the Ongi for two years. When Temple and Maurice Portman accompanied the man back to North Sentinel in hopes of establishing friendly contact, the Sentinelese didn't recognize their former tribesmen and responded by shooting arrows at them. Having narrowly escaped death at the hands of his own people, the man demanded to be returned to his new home, flatly refusing to remain on the island. Temple described the Sentinelese as a tribe which slays every stranger, however, inoffensive, on sight, whether a forgotten member of itself, of another Andamanese tribe, or a complete foreigner. Other British colonial administrators visited the island, but none of the expeditions after 1880 had any ethnographic purpose. The next attempt to contact didn't come until 1926, which was carried out under the command of Lieutenant Colonel M.J. Farrar. He only briefly glimpsed three of the island's inhabitants and failed to make contact for the duration of his visit. Before he left, Farrar took the liberty of helping himself to a few Sentinelese bows, some arrows, a canoe paddle, and a skeleton for further research. As usual, gifts of cloth, pots, pans, and other potentially valuable items were deposited on the beach before the expedition set sail. Forty-one years later, a group of twenty people led by Indian anthropologist T.N. Pandit landed on North Sentinel. It was the first time a trained anthropologist had ever tried to contact the Sentinelese. The group saw several clusters of Sentinelese along the coastline, who retreated into the forest as the team advanced. The invaders followed the natives' footprints and found a group of 18 huts made from grass and leaves. The huts had recently been abandoned, the fires still burning and tools laying on the ground where they had been dropped in mid-use. The team also discovered raw honey, the skeletal remains of pigs, wild fruits, an axe, a multi-pronged wooden spear, bows, arrows, cane baskets, fishing nets, bamboo pots, and wooden buckets. Although most of the implements and tools were made of natural materials, there was also evidence of metalworking. The team failed to establish contact and withdrew after leaving gifts. The inaugural expedition led to over 20 years of repeated visits to the island by Panda and his crew. Sometimes the natives were reserved but not overly aggressive, while other times they would end in sentinels making threatening gestures or, worse... In 1974, Panda escorted a film crew from National Geographic to the island, accompanied by armed police to film a documentary called Man in Search of Man. The locals emerged from the jungle when the motorboat broke through the barrier reefs. They fired arrows at the crew. The boat landed at the safe point on the coast and left gifts on the sand, including a miniature plastic car, some coconuts, a live pig, a doll, and aluminum cookware. The Sentinelese answered this friendly gesture with another volley of arrows, one of which struck the documentary director in his thigh. The man who wounded the director laughed at his accomplishment, while the others speared and buried both the pig and the doll. After the burial, the Sentinelese turned their backs and walked into the forest, taking the coconuts and cookware with them. This expedition led to the first photograph of the Sentinelese, published by Ragbir Singh in the National Geographic magazine. The inhabitants of North Sentinel were presented as people from whom arrows speak louder than worse. Sometime later in 1974, Pandit took three Ongi men on a contact mission with the idea that the Sentinel Islanders might understand their language. Standing on stools to make themselves easily seen from the shore, the Ongi shouted words of friendship from the safety of the open water. The Sentinelese, however, appeared to reply with a barrage of curses. Pandit later told an interview. We could see their faces through our binoculars. They looked furious and were giving them hell. The Angi men seemed to understand the basic gist of the threats and fearfully hid in different corners of the boat. On another occasion, a group of Sentinelese men suddenly raced out of the forest toward the contact team, causing an unnamed VIP to fall flat in his face in a rush to get back to the boat. His bodyguard fired into the air, answered by an arrow that missed him by mere inches, After the incident, the team decided to stay away from the shore, only to hastily drop gifts on the beach. Sometimes, the Sentinelese would wave at them and other times they would turn their backs and assume a defecating posture, which Pandit interpreted as an insult. Other obscene gestures including shaking or swaying a warrior's wiener at intruders, another blatant abuse that transcended the language barrier. In 1981, a cargo ship named the Primrose ran aground on the reef. The crew soon observed several armed Sentinelese warriors making dugout canoes on the beach. This prompted a frantic request from the ship's captain for an immediate airdrop of weapons. A storm came rolling in and scuttled any efforts to bring firepower to the stranded Primrose, but it also prevented the Sentinelese from reaching the ship in their canoes. The crew was rescued a week later, and another team was sent to salvage metal and other materials from the shipwreck. The island's inhabitants patiently awaited their turn to scavenge iron from the wreckage, sometimes watching the salvage crew from the beach with an unmistakable air of impatience. In early 1991, a momentous event occurred between the Pandit group and the Sentinelese. After many years, they had a peaceful exchange involving a gift of coconuts. A warrior initially drew an arrow against the researchers as they landed on the beach, but a Sentinelese woman pushed the weapon down. After that, the warrior buried his bow and arrow in the sand. Once all the weapons were buried, the other natives waited up to the researchers' dinghies and received the coconuts directly from the hands of Pandit and his team. Pandit took part in the second expedition on the 24th of February. The Sentinelese approached without weapons, jumped on the dinghies, and took coconut sacks. They were curious about a rifle hidden in the boat, which the team members believed they may have seen as a source of iron. In 1996, the government of India suspended all permission to set foot on North Sentinel, once again putting the island off limits to all outsiders. It's been speculated that the reason for the termination of these permissions was because the Sentinelese would not let most of the post-Pandit contact teams come near them. The teams would wait until the armed Sentinelese retreated, then leave gifts on the beach and set them adrift toward the shore. The government was also concerned about the possibility of harm to the Sentinelese by an influx of outsiders, likely resulting from the projecting a relatively friendly image in recent years. Photos of the 1991 expedition were removed from public display and the government restricted their use of them. The Indian Ocean earthquake of 2004 and the resulting tsunami were feared to have possibly destroyed the entire tribe. However, a Coast Guard helicopter that was sent to check on them spotted several tribes peoples, one of whom was photographed shooting arrows at the intrusive aerial presence disturbing their peace. The Sentinelese were alive, well, and were full of aggression. Not only did they survive this natural disaster, but the earthquake raised North Sentinel. It connected to a small wooded island nearby, effectively increasing its resources and territory. They were also observed going farther than ever in their canoes traveling up to a quarter mile offshore to fish and hunt for turtles. The Indian Navy has patrolled the seas surrounding North Sentinel for many decades. However, illegal fishing and poaching of crabs around the protected island are still persistent problems. In 2006, an inevitable tragedy took place. Two poachers hunting for turtles accidentally drifted too close to the island and were killed by the Sentinelese. According to reluctant eyewitness accounts of other poachers, The duo had gotten drunk on palm wine and fell deeply asleep on the bottom of their boat. As they slept away the effects of the wine, their boat somehow detached from its anchor, and they floated ashore. The natives saw the approaching intruders and waded into the shallows. Axes raised for the kill, they violently murdered the slumbering fishermen and buried them in a shallow grave on the beach. The incident's controversy created a renewed public interest in the enigmatic Sentinelese. Some people rallied around the widow of one of the victims who believed the authorities should arrest the murderers and punish them according to the nation's laws. Many others sided with the Sentinelese, decrying the notion that the modern justice system should not be used against a people who know virtually nothing about the outside world. Ultimately, Indian officials declined to pursue action against the killers of the poachers, citing the dangerous logistical difficulties of launching a murder investigation on the island. They pointed out it would be well-nigh impossible to make the natives understand what was happening to them, or why it was even happening, because no one outside of the island could speak the Sentinelese language. The authorities made three separate attempts to retrieve the bodies, but they were repeatedly chased away by the Sentinelese, and soon gave up their efforts to reclaim the dead men for their families. In November 2018, history once again repeated itself with the tragic death of an American missionary named John Allen Chow. He considered North Sentinel Island to be the last stronghold of Satan and was determined to spread the word of God to the Sentinelese people. Chow paid two fishermen to break the law to take him close to the island. The fishermen warned him not to go any further, but he crossed the remaining distance himself in a canoe. On his first attempt, Chow lost his nerve and paddled back to the boat when he observed the angry-looking tribespeople stringing their bows, presumably preparing to launch an assault against the unwanted visitor rattled, but undeterred from carrying out his missionary work, Chow returned a second time and noted that the islanders reacted to him with amusement, bewilderment, and hostility. He attempted to sing worship songs and spoke to them in Zosa, after which they would fall into a puzzled silence. Other attempts to communicate ended with the Sentinelese bursting into laughter. Chow stated they spoke with lots of high-pitched sounds and gestures. When he tried to hand over fish and some other assorted gifts, a boy shot an arrow that pierced the Bible he was holding in front of his chest. Chow immediately fled for the safety of the fishing boat. On November 16th, Chow asked the fisherman to drop him off near the island and retreat to a discreet distance, thinking the Sentinelese might feel more comfortable if they didn't see a modern fishing boat floating nearby. Chow admitted in his diary that he was afraid of what might happen, but it was worth it to declare Jesus to these people. The fishermen later observed Sentinelese tribe members dragging Chow's lifeless body along the beach, which they buried in a shallow grave. Police arrested seven fishermen for assisting Chow in his plan to get close to the restricted island. Local authorities opened a murder case that named unknown individuals as the suspects, but there was no suggestion that the Sentinelese would be charged the U.S. government, confirmed it would not request the Indian government to press charges against the tribe. Indian officials made several attempts to recover Chow's body, but they eventually abandoned those efforts. Chow remains buried on the island. There was an international outcry against Chow's missionary church after his murder, accusing them of being at least partly responsible for the young man's scofflaw attitude in the face of his devotion to his beliefs. The church also came under fire for portraying the dead missionary as a martyr. Chow was criticized for his evident lack of concern in keeping the Sentinelese and himself safe from harm during their encounters. Very little was known about the Sentinelese, neither their language nor their finer points of their culture. We know they dress in loincloth and tiny alts, and their homes are temporary huts with sloping roofs made from leaves and branches and other natural materials. They are hunter-gatherers, not attempting to engage in agriculture or domestication of animals. Their diet consists of fish, birds, crabs, wild boar, and whatever edible vegetation they can forage in their environment. Nothing is known about their religious beliefs, but sentinelese bows are sometimes decorated with simple geometric shapes and shade patterns. They use bird bones and feathers on their arrows. Unlike most Stone Age peoples, The Sentinelese have used scavenged iron over the centuries, crafting them into arrowheads and daggers. They build small, narrow, out trigger canoes, which they maneuver with long poles in the shallow waters inside the reef. The only other character that can be easily verified is their propensity for violence against outsiders. All other observations were merely guesswork, including a reliable tally of the Sentinelese population ranging from 50 to 500 individuals. Like their culture and their language, even their numbers are a mystery. North Sentinel Island is a pristine habitat, utterly untouched by the heavy hand of modern industrialization. Life on the island has remained the same for many centuries, and this is precisely how the natives wish to continue. They want to live their lives in their way, and they will not hesitate to kill to protect their secretive existence. If you ever plan to evade the authorities and land on North Sentinel Island, It would be advisable to get your affairs in order before embarking on your journey, because you probably won't be coming back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire! Huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the 28th of March in the year 1830, American President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act into law. With a flourish of the pen, President Jackson set in motion a series of forced removals of native tribes from their treaty lands in the southeastern states. The displaced natives endured a brutal journey along a treacherous route to lands west of the Mississippi. This deadly march became known as the Trail of Tears. Thousands of indigenous peoples perished along the routes. It has been labeled as an act of genocide by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. When he served as general in the American military, Andrew Jackson had led many campaigns against the native populace, and he continued to wage war on them when he made the transition from military man to politician. For at least a decade before his presidency, Jackson had been publicly advocating for Indian removal a policy that would see Natives ousted from their ancestral homelands and forced to relocate to a new quote-unquote Indian territory west of the Mississippi. This was his top priority upon taking office in 1829. The Indian Removal Act was bitterly debated in Congress. It was a hotly divisive proposal that was condemned by the legendary frontiersman and Tennessee Congressman Davy Crockett, who declared his vote against the Removal Act would not make him ashamed on the Day of Judgment. The influential Christian missionary Jeremiah Everts also opposed Jackson's morbid vision of a native Free South, and he dedicated the final years of his life to fighting against Indian removal. Unfortunately, very few of his missionary peers joined him in his struggle. In the words of the noted historian Francis Paul Prucha, the Christian crusade against the removal of the Indians died with Everts, Jackson claimed it was both just and morally correct to remove the entire Native population from the Southeast. In a speech regarding his controversial viewpoint, Jackson said, It will separate the Indians from immediate contact with settlements of whites, free them from the power of the states, enable them to pursue happiness in their own way and under their own rude institutions. President Jackson portrayed his idea as being beneficial to all parties involved but the real incentive behind the Removal Act was greed. Gold had been discovered near Dahlonega, Georgia, in 1828, resulting in a massive influx of mining companies and hopeful prospectors. Much of the gold was located on Cherokee territories, creating tension between the native populace and the gold-seekers who were squatting on their land. Another disturbing factor was the production of cotton or, more specifically, the desire to expand cotton production into native territory. When Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin, the process of separating cotton fibers from the seeds became much faster and much more efficient. Previously, it could easily take 10 to 12 hours for a slave to produce a single pound of cotton. The cotton gin, however, would produce 50 pounds of cotton in a single day. Between the free labor provided by slavery and the efficiency of Whitney's invention, the South became an agricultural powerhouse a period in Southern history known as the Antebellum South. To match the tremendous potential of their new cotton gins, plantation owners began to cultivate more and more fields of cotton. It wasn't long before these massive operations began to encroach on Native lands. It had already been decided by the Supreme Court that it was illegal to occupy Native land in Georgia without a permit. The settlers often ignored this ruling, and Andrew Jackson feared a battle between federal troops and the Georgia militia if he attempted to enforce it. His answer to the dilemma was the Indian Removal Act, making it legal to coerce natives to abandon their homes with promise of money, government support, and a new home in the Indian Territory that is present-day Oklahoma. The main targets of the Removal Act were the five civilized tribes of the Southeast, a name applied to them by the settlers in reference to the tribes having absorbed certain attributes of European culture. The five civilized tribes included the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole Nations. All these tribes had already been forced to sign treaties that vastly diminished their territories, but in President Jackson's eyes, that simply wasn't enough. He wanted them to disappear from the southeast entirely. The Choctaw Nation were the first to crumble beneath the oppressive force of Jackson's new law. They had once occupied large areas of the present day Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. But by the time Jackson came into office, their vast nation had been reduced to just 11 million acres. The Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek ceded their remaining lands to the United States in the early months of 1831. The chief of the Choctaw tribe, George W. Harkins, wrote an open letter to the citizens of the United States before the removals were about to begin, saying, We as Choctaws rather choose to suffer and be free than live under the degrading influence of laws which our voice could not be heard in their formation. An Indian affairs agent named George Gaines was assigned to oversee the removals. Gaines decided to remove Choctaws in three phases. Starting on November 1st, 1831, with two groups leaving from Memphis and Vicksburg. It was a particularly harsh winter that year, delaying the voyage with heavy rain, sleet, and driving snow. Initially, the Choctaws were going to be transported by wagon, but flash floods rendered travel by land almost impossible. The Choctaws were ferried by five boats to river-based destinations. The Memphis group traveled up to Arkansas for about 60 miles, finally arriving at a settlement named Arkansas Post. The temperatures stayed below freezing for almost a week, choking the river with thick ice and preventing further travel for many weeks to come. Food was strictly rationed to a handful of boiled corn, one turnip, and two cups of heated water per day. Forty government wagons were eventually sent to Arkansas Post to transport the sick and starving natives to Little Rock. When they reached Little Rock, a Choctaw chief told a local journalist the journey had been a trail of tears and death. The Vicksburg group met an even worse fate. Led by an incompetent guide, they were lost in the swamps around Lake Providence. Of the 17,000 Choctaw who were forced to travel to Indian Territory, between 2,500 and 6,000 of them had died on the trail. Approximately 5 to 6,000 Choctaw remained in Mississippi after the initial removal efforts. Those who stayed endured continual harassment legal battles, and physical violence that often ended in severe injury or even death. The Seminole tribe were next on the chopping block. In 1832, their leaders were called to a meeting at Payne's Landing on the Ocklawaha River. The Treaty of Payne's Landing called for the Seminoles to move west to be settled on the Creek Reservation, thus becoming part of the Creek Tribe. A delegation of seven chiefs signed a statement on March 28th, 1833, which stated that the new land was acceptable. Upon returning to Florida, however, most of the chiefs renounced the statement, claiming that they had either not signed it or had been forced to sign it. Either way, the chiefs insisted they didn't have the authority to speak for all the different bands of Seminoles in the region. Armed hostilities commenced in December 1835 when the Seminoles and several freed slaves ambushed a company of soldiers from the U.S. Army. The company had been marching from Fort Brook in Tampa to Fort King in Ocala, opening them to a guerrilla-style battle they were not prepared to fight. The Seminoles and their former slave allies succeeded in killing all but three of the 110 army troops, an attack that came to be known as the Dade Massacre. The fighting continued for several years, with Seminole military leaders effectively using guerrilla warfare tactics against their oppressors. The U.S. forces responded by destroying Seminole farms and plantation in a concentrated effort to starve them into submission. By the early 1840s, many Seminoles had either been killed or forced to surrender by impending starvation. Those who surrendered were sent to Indian Territory, and many of them died along the way. Though there was no official peace treaty, several hundred Seminoles remained in southwest Florida after the conflict was over. Several of them retreated into the Everglades, successfully remaining free of the invaders and their unjust laws. To this day, the Seminole of Florida called themselves the Unconquered People. Unlike most of the other native peoples who traveled the Trail of Tears, the Chickasaw tribe were able to negotiate financial compensation for their land. Even though the Chickasaw had a relatively successful journey in comparison to the other tribes, they still lost between five and 800 people along the trail a staggering death toll. They negotiated a treaty of their own with the Choctaws upon their arrival, purchasing land in the New Choctaw Territory for $530,000. Jackson convinced Congress to ratify this purchase to hold the natives to their word and keep them from returning to their homelands. The Creek Nation signed the Treaty of Cusetta on March 24, 1832, which divided up Creek lands into individual allotments. They were given the choice of either selling their allotments for funds to relocate to the West or stay in Alabama as state and federal citizens who were subject to state laws. Organized groups of predatory land speculators began to defraud creeks out of their allotments, resulting in a violent backlash in the form of raids on settler villages and homesteads. The attacks were described by government officials as an act of war, immediately forfeiting the prior treaty agreement the U.S. government sent General Winfield Scott to subdue the creeks and forcibly remove them to Indian Territory. Almost 20,000 creeks were driven from their homelands, and it's been estimated that as many as 3,500 of them perished during the journey. The Cherokee were the last of the five tribes to endure the Trail of Tears. They had also signed a removal treaty in 1835, but by 1838, only 2,000 Cherokee had voluntarily left for the Indian Territory. President Martin Van Buren sent General Scott to relocate the remainder by force. In the winter of 1838, the captured Cherokee began the 1,000-mile march with inadequate clothing, many of them traveling by foot without shoes or moccasins. Because of the deadly cholera outbreaks that plagued them throughout the journey, the displaced Cherokee were banned from entering any towns or villages along the way. This made their journey even longer by forcing them to give a wide berth around any settlements they encountered during the march. They were also the target of violent harassment from settlers along the route, who would ambush and rob the Cherokee at gunpoint for their meager possessions. The soldiers who oversaw this forced march did very little to stop these bandits from exploiting the prisoners. After crossing Tennessee and Kentucky, they arrived at the Ohio River on the 3rd of December, 1838 directly across from the Golconda in southern Illinois. The starving and impoverished natives were charged a dollar a head to cross the river on the Barry's Ferry, which usually charged only 12 cents, equal to $2.92 today. The Cherokee were not allowed passage into the ferry had serviced all others who wished to cross the river. They would be forced to take shelter and wait under Mantle Rock, a rocky bluff on the Kentucky side of the river until the ferry operator decided he had nothing better to do. Many of them died while waiting for their turns to cross the river. Several Cherokee were also murdered by locals in the area. The tribe eventually filed a lawsuit against the United States government, suing the government for $35 a head to bury their murdered people. As many as 4,000 Cherokee died on the Trail of Tears from hunger, disease, exposure to the bitter cold, and violence at the hand of hostile settlers. A volunteer soldier from Georgia who had participated in the removal was quoted as saying, I fought through the Civil War and have seen men shot to pieces and slaughtered by thousands, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever knew. Approximately 20,000 indigenous people lost their lives as a direct result of the Indian Removal Act. Although the real death toll may be much higher, although the U.S. government has never formally apologized for the misery and death that was inflicted by the Indian Removal Act, a broader apology to the indigenous peoples of America, was quietly tucked away on page 45 of the Defense Appropriations Act of 2010. It says, and I quote, The United States, acting through Congress, apologizes on behalf of the people of the United States to all native peoples for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on native peoples by the citizens of the United States. This decidedly vague attempt at an apology was criticized for being purposely buried from public view in the last quarter of a 67-page document. To date, no direct and specific acknowledgement of this act of genocide has ever been issued by the United States government. In 1987, 2,200 miles of trails were authorized to acknowledge the removal of 17 groups of Cherokee people, It was named the Trail of Tears National Historic Trail, and it traverses portions of nine different states, including the land and water routes. In 1991, author Jerry Ellis wrote Walking the Trail, a personal account of walking the same 900-mile journey his native ancestors had been forced to take in 1838. It was nominated for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, and it has been extensively used in classrooms as a teaching resource for educators. The Trail of Tears was a deliberate and shockingly callous act of aggression against the native peoples of the Southeast. As many as one-third of the victims died before they reached their destination, and the few who stayed behind suffered systemic campaigns of harassment and violence at the hands of the state militias, federal officials, and settlers who wanted them to disappear off the face of the planet. It can only be hoped that the United States government will someday acknowledge the harm that was inflicted upon these tribes during the removal, and publicly admit to their own role in one of the worst humanitarian crises to ever occur on American soil.